Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to LawPod. I am Dr. Lauren Dempster, a lecturer in the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast. I am delighted today to pick up on our PhD series and I am joined by Nikhil Narayan. He is one of our PhD candidates currently in the school. Nikhil, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your PhD project? Sure. And first of all, thanks very much, Lauren, for uh, having me on this series. Happy to discuss it with you. My name again is uh, Nikhil Narayan. I'm in my third year of my PhD here at the law school, and the sort of working title of my project is Transitional Justice and State Accountability for Atrocity Crimes, Judicializing Guarantees of Non-Recurrence. And to maybe give a further brief summary of what that exactly means, the project intends to examine the scope and application of the obligation to provide guarantees of non-recurrence or non-repetition, both terms used interchangeably as a core but under-scrutinized pillar of transitional justice. And looking at Sri Lanka and Myanmar as case studies anchoring a comparative cross-regional analysis, the threshold research question that the project aims to answer is, to what extent can and does international law effectively oblige post-conflict states to undertake guarantees of non-repetition? Great. Thank you for that introduction, Nikhil. So I guess a useful starting point for our listeners would be if you could explain a bit about what guarantees of non-recurrence are, and at least in theory, what their role is in transitional justice. Sure. And um, I guess the the very simplified form of understanding guarantees of non-repetition as they are sort of applied and understood in transitional justice particularly, is really they are the one can say the panoply of reforms that post-conflict or post-authoritarian transitioning states and societies undertake to address the sources of conflict or human rights abuses that were committed during that past prior era with the aim of, as the name implies, preventing that same violence and abuse from recurring or repeating. But perhaps a more Um, robust and more useful definition for our purposes for the project and for understanding it in the context of transitional justice comes from the UN Secretary General's 2004 report, perhaps, which has now kind of come to uh, represent a sort of form uh, authoritative and the conventionally accepted description of transitional justice and Uh, and its constituent parts, one of which being guarantees of non-repetition. And if I can, I'll just, I have it in front of me so I can simply read that definition. And the UN Secretary General's 2004 report on the rule of law and transitional justice in post-conflict societies defines uh, transitional justice as the full range of processes and mechanisms associated with a society's attempts to come to terms with a legacy of large-scale past abuse in order to ensure accountability, serve justice, and achieve reconciliation. These may include both judicial and non-judicial mechanisms with differing levels of international involvement, or none at all, and individual prosecutions, reparations, truth-seeking, institutional reform, vetting, 
and dismissals or a combination thereof. So what's interesting about that definition is that you'll notice he doesn't specific, specifically refer to guarantees of non-repetition, but it's uh, what what is implicated is there there is that and and is reflected in historical practice of TJL, uh, you know, from its sort of formative inception, is that guarantees of non-repetition have largely centered on things like vetting, which is to say the removal of perpetrators or former regime loyalists or other bad actors from justice and security sector institutions of the prior regime and institutional reforms of those uh, particular institutions. So reforming the justice sector, uh, the judiciary, the prisons, the police, the army, um, those institutions associated with uh, that are implicated in the most egregious, the most directly implicated in the abuses of the prior era. Great. Thank you, Nikhil. I mean, it seems already like we're getting a little bit to, to some of the potential issues and challenges around understanding guarantees of non-recurrence, but could you say a bit more about the specific rationale for, for your project? Yeah. And the impetus for my project really, for me, kind of was born out of my my own sort of experience in my past incarnation as a, as a human rights advocate in the field, working for various human rights organizations, doing transitional justice work in various um, parts of South Asia and elsewhere in Africa and elsewhere. And this gradual recognition over time that there is a critical gap in sort of the peace and justice movement, I suppose one can say. So we have, you know, transitional justice and the international justice community has evolved a number of institutions and norms to address individual and even in some cases state responsibility for past crimes committed, uh, for, you know, human rights abuses committed in the past. And, and yet this has done very little to deter, uh, prevent, you know, ongoing conflict and ongoing abuses elsewhere. And, you know, one of the, um, despite its recognition as a principle in theory under transitional justice and broadly international law and human rights law in general, there is no coherent framework for this future forward-looking element of transitional justice with regards to prevention of future uh, recurrence of violence and abuse. And without such a coherent framework that would articulate more clearly states' obligations in this regard, and leaving it to sort of, you know, the vagaries of policy and, uh, you know, um, development and peacebuilding kind of um, the more uh, the political side of negotiating such um, processes, uh, states have a little, very little incentive to undertake those specific necessary reforms that they would need to, in order to combat those structural roots of conflict and you know ensure that they don't happen again so as a result those roots of conflict the infrastructure of violence and conflict whether it be those bad actors or it be those institutions that have not yet fully uh, turned a corner they remain intact and we see violence and abuse perpetuating on an ongoing basis and as i sort of alluded to while it's recognized in principle and in theory under various streams of international law and as a core principle of transitional justice, the literature has not really evolved, developed too much um, clarity on what this means, this, this sort of principle of guarantees of non-repetition actually means in actual fact. And, you know, looking at South Asia, why I chose to look at South Asia, because um, this same sort of scholarly gap is 
is particularly acute in the South Asian region, despite the South Asian region, many of the countries in the South Asian region being sites of gross human rights abuses, mass atrocities, even you know core crimes such as crimes against humanity and war crimes and, and uh, arguably genocide even. And so despite a lot of kinetic energy happening on the ground by peace and justice activists in those countries, the literature is also um, not really uh, investigated South Asian experiences fully. So I thought that, um, and particularly given my own sort of personal experience, professional experience on the ground there, I would be had a particular affinity to sort of be the one that maybe takes a crack at it. <laughs> Great, thank you, Nikhil. Um, in terms of your specific focus on, on Sri Lanka and Myanmar, could you say a bit about why you've selected those two sites specifically and perhaps tell us a little bit more about your, your research methods more broadly? Sure. Um, yeah, so as I said, as I alluded to, so, you know, I think um, the South Asian region, uh, Asia in general, and in particular, the South, the sub-region of South Asia has been relatively neglected or at least under-scrutinized in terms of mainstream transitional justice discourse in terms of what's happening. And this is uh, despite the uh, several of the countries, and including particularly the two case study countries, Sri Lanka and Myanmar being places where there's been um, gross uh, human rights abuse, long intractable conflicts and authoritarian, various uh, forms of authoritarian regimes, gross abuses. Um, and in particular, we're witnessing in both of these countries a backslide towards authoritarianism and potentially thwart, towards conflict, uh, sowing the or sowing the seeds of unrest for potentially um, violent conflict in the future, if not uh, even already. Um, and so I thought, um, and it would be useful to look at these two particular countries, uh, especially given their sort of uh, somewhat. Um, troubling trajectories of recent times going backwards towards their authoritarian and abusive pasts. Methodologically, of course, uh, initially when I started this project, I had in, hoped and intended to conduct in-country field research in both or at least one or the other country or both countries if possible. Um, of course, unfortunately, the pandemic has kind of thrown a wrench into those plans. And so it's forced me to sort of restructure a little bit the empirical component of my research. But nevertheless, I'm hoping and that I'll be able to do at least a select number of remote interviews in country doing field research, both uh, principally with civil society or victims and victims organization or victims organizations. And but also hopefully uh, officials if I if they would be available and willing to uh, speak with me, again, given the um, Given the not so friendly turn that both governments in the both countries have taken, I thought it might be harder to achieve now. But hopefully, I'm also counting on my sort of um, existing contacts and networks there that might open a few doors if possible. But in any case, uh, the remote interviews that I will be doing in, in Myanmar and Sri Lanka or with uh, individuals in Myanmar and Sri Lanka will hopefully serve as a, if not a broadly comprehensive you know in country fact finding um, empirical investigation at least an indicative survey of what's happening in the sort of in the guarantees of non-repetition space or in the reform and reconciliation space in these countries um, that can then serve as a frame of reference for a, a broader comparative analysis 
Great. Thank you, Nikhil. I really hope some of those interviews um, work out for you. Um, so do I. <laughs> so you're at the start of your third year now of your PhD. So, I mean, you touched on already, like the, the issue that lies at the heart of guarantees of, of non-recurrence is that very point of non-recurrence. And that fits into a sort of broader shift in transitional justice, not a shift perhaps, but a call from some transitional justice researchers for transitional justice to be more transformative and to address those sort of structural structural harms or underlying inequalities. I assume at this point you have um, been very well across uh, the literature on this. So like, what are your thoughts on the potential for transitional justice to be transformative and how do you think uh, guarantees of non-recurrence can fit into that picture? Yeah, so this is the um, at the crux of where my research is at this current stage. So you, please don't hold me to this a year from now. But uh, I would um, I would argue that transitional justice can be transformative to the extent that it is enabling or unleashing sort of or facilitating the um, already existing. But perhaps latent or dormant or fledgling transformative forces that are indigenous to these societies in transition. And what I'm thinking of in particular, and hopefully my comparative and empirical work will verify or counter this, is you know, looking at where the transformative potential is amongst the local communities already on the grassroots movements and grassroots efforts that are happening in the reconciliation and reform space, those human rights activists and the victims groups and so forth, and looking at looking at it from a ground up, uh, contextualized and a lo locally driven process. Um, you know, but I think, so I think the transformative nature of transitional justice ought to be viewed more as a process oriented and perhaps a dialectical approach rather than any sort of finite end state that we're hoping or expecting to see in five years or seven or 10 or whenever the international donor money runs out. And what I guess, you know, to sort of more elaborate more on that is, um, I also think of it, as I said, I use the term dialectic and I think of it as also the process has to be self-reflective and self-correcting. And this is not just in the academic sense, where as academics, we look at what we analyze and we scrutinize and we maybe come up with theories post-fact in various um, contexts. But I think as practitioners, the transitional justice sort of community needs to sort of look at the work that they're doing, the sort of the transitional justice and guarantees of non-repetition for policy implementation itself needs to be viewed as a long-term ongoing self-corrective process because policy measures, transitional justice measures and processes that have come to, you know, that, that we now come to understand as TJ, as transitional justice, are themselves become endogenous variables, so to speak, in the local context. And they themselves create and modify uh, incentive structures and demands of the local communities. And those are those demands and incentives are moving targets. And so the TJ project has to move along with that and that requires um, a more flexible approach a more context-driven approach and again looking at transformation rather than any sort of finite goal of seeing some very like you know ideal type liberal democracy with the constitution and human rights and 
so on and so forth, uh, recognizing it's uh, that it we have to work within the system, uh, work within the uh, local context, and support the um, grassroots initiatives that might be oftentimes, especially in places like Asia, in South Asian these South Asian uh, case study examples that I'll be looking at, particularly where the states themselves are quite and the vested or the entrenched you know structures are themselves uh, quite intransigent and um, themselves hurdles to transitional justice, not the enablers of transitional justice. It's going to require um, a more a broader thinking to understand what that transformation is and what that time scale is of that transformative process. Yeah, that's a really interesting response, Nikhil. I guess one of the things that is striking, and it's perhaps an, an unfair question before you've um, done your empirical research, is obviously if we think generally about guarantees of non-recurrence and some of the things that you touched on at the start um, around the types of processes that that entails, like you know, they're very much state-led and top-down. But now when we think about what transformative justice can look like, that's very much bottom-up. Like, how how do you think guarantees of non-recurrence at a grassroots level can work? Like, do you think, what do you think they would look like if they were bottom up rather than um, elite led, I guess? Well, so yeah. And it's hopefully the empirical research, the empirical work will clarify this for me, but what my research is kind of coming to giving me an understanding now is I think um, transitional justice discourse has broadly accepted the need for more holistic approaches the terms you know the the language the terminology of holism has kind of is is, is uh, well used it's well used but what that really means i would say in in uh, guarantees of non-repetition in particular is looking at more a dynamic view of institutional reform for instance um and what that might also mean is getting beyond um looking at what institutional reforms up to now have taken a very technocratic um, approach to reform as such basically a capacity what might you know basically define it might be referred to as capacity building or you know the vetting process or you know training up judges on human rights law and black letter human rights law or um, giving them professionalizing the judiciary by giving them more computers very sort of technocratic solutions to what is understood as institutional reform and getting beyond that and looking at more sort of uh, institutional reform as a sort of relational or dynamic uh, process and looking at sort of informal institutions the informal the people and the behaviors of those people and the incentive structures that incentivize certain behaviors in those people that inhabit those institutions and addressing those relational dynamics and that more and going further deeper into that is uh, it's important to I would suggest that we have to look at the power dynamics, the higher the social hierarchies or the political hierarchies or the um, the other various power dynamics that that contextualize uh, these uh, these specific contexts, these societies in each of these societies. And what I what my again, what my research is um, suggesting to me is that one way of looking at this is one way of understanding this is to sort of take something analogous to what in development and peace building is quite well applied uh, quite well utilized is sort of this notion of applied political economy analysis and to look at um, what is happening in the ground what is happening in sort of in the reconciliation and reform space uh, 
not so much in terms of the static have they have they professionalized the ministry of justice or have they professionalized the judiciary but rather a threshold inquiry of understanding these various relational dynamics what are the societal imbalances what are the power hierarchies what are the you know social hierarchies and power dynamics in a country and then the specifics the specific uh, reform measures will them will reveal themselves or hopefully will be reflective of addressing those um, power dynamics those those relational um, dynamics in each society so i think guarantees of non-recurrence should look more in terms of institutional reform from this dynamic view this more sort of relational view this more sort of um political economy view of what is the not just the monolithic building of this of the court or this piece of paper called a constitution but what are the dynamics that need to change to to disrupt or alter the incentive structures that cause the behavior of those various actors inhabiting those institutions to do the things that, that they're doing and this can be led by uh, if you if using this sort of theoretical framework or this conceptual framework i'm hoping that when i do look at what's happening on the ground or when i continue, you know as i'm starting to look at what's happening on the ground in my case study countries using this sort of more um political economy approach for lack of a better word um it'll be a it'll be a conceptual framework which will review it'll give some understanding and context so what is happening both from a state-led and as and from a non-state-led perspective so whatever reconciliation efforts are happening by grassroots organizations in Sri Lanka, for instance, women's organizations doing reconciliation work at a very grassroots level that are um, this, um, looking at it through the lens of this more um, dynamic approach might reveal um, the impact that it's having, perhaps not on the judiciary as such, but maybe on those social institutions of communal harmony and then, you know, the gender and, and caste and ethnic um, hierarchies that are themselves indirectly, but very much at the root of the conflict. That's a really useful point, Nikhil. Actually, it made me reflect on, like if we think about one of the broader critiques in transitional justice of its sort of lack of engagement with the local, whatever we might mean by that, um, and the sort of shift towards potentially engaging more with local dynamics, but in a way that's perhaps quite instrumentalizing or tokenistic. But actually, if, as she mentioned, like we look at the actual relationships and power dynamics there, that arguably sheds more light on what that looks like. So um, it sounds great. And I look forward to, to seeing the, the publications that come from, from your thesis. I can think about those <laughs> down the line. Uh, <laughs> um, so obviously, Nikhil, you've, you've touched on this a little bit already, and I'm aware that you've yet to do your field work, but what do you think like the sort of key findings or, or the most sort of interesting points will, will be coming out of all of this? Um, well, just hopefully the, uh, you know, starting from that, uh, the, what I just referred to, um, I, I th I'd like to find, I'd like to be able to get an, uh, I'm hoping to sort of, we identify a more, um, richer understanding or a more robust understanding of, um, again, I'm going to use a sort of phrase that's kind of has gotten into mainstream transitional justice literature, but a broader sort of understanding of the menu of options that states and societies can and ought to be implementing in the realm of prevention of recurrence. And as particularly, what are those menu of options of those particular, those broader understanding of those measures that are 
civil society led or grassroots led or locally led, you know, non, not getting beyond sort of this, um, seeing what, um, uh, what various communities have done uh, that have been effective or perhaps not effective or, you know, what can be, what can, where can the international community support these local initiatives better and give a broader understanding of, in, of um, guarantees of non-recurrence beyond simply those very sort of uh, national level statist, state, state-centric uh, reform of the, the high, higher judiciary, so to speak. But what are the initiatives that um, happened at, at a more, at a, at a more non-state level or local level or sub-national level that are equally having an impact on this, uh, this objective of prevention. And like I said, I think beyond that, so giving some broader context from uh, South Asian experiences to this larger, under, a more robust or holistic understanding of uh, guarantees. And by extension, where can practitioners and where can the international community or the international um, scholarly and practitioner community in transitional justice you know, uh, engage to support these, these initiatives? or transplant them elsewhere, perhaps, if they're effective and contextually can be correlated elsewhere. For sure. I also wanted to pick up on um, one of the, the points you mentioned earlier, Nikhil, around how states have little incentive to sort of engage with guarantees of non-recurrence. What do you think could bring us to a point where, I mean, as we know, obviously, in transitional justice, without political will, it can be very difficult for anything to move. So what do you think would need to happen in, in that regard? This is a great question, and this is kind of how my project has already has evolved to somewhat um, from even as my as the you know the working title suggests. I began looking at this project very much from a legalistic sort of uh, approach and from an international law standpoint, kind of thinking to myself that perhaps the answer is we need more robust international law enforcing more hard obligations on states. But you're right. I mean, that's probably not the answer. That may not be the answer, perhaps not the answer. Um, if we look uh, at other regions, for instance, in, in Latin American countries, they've had the, the, the a lot of the reforms and what became sort of understood as guarantees of non-repetition or re- reparation and, and broadly was led by some of the initiatives of the international, uh, the inter-American court there, the regional court there. Um, in Asia, in South Asia, there is no such regional uh, human rights uh, court. Um, of course, in, in Southeast Asia, they have ASEAN, but um, we can discuss its <laughs> its virtues or flaws later. But it certainly does. It certainly it doesn't constitute a court, and so in and even to that extent, South Asia doesn't have anything along those lines. Um, so yeah, without some sort of enforceability, um, nevertheless, I would imagine that. Through my, you know, well, not I'm not that I'm going to have the the definitive answer, but I think a an, a more coherent understanding of the principle of guarantees of non-recurrence, whether it's rooted in some sort of, you know, international law or whether it's simply a if it's a, a more soft law, a principle under international law, a more coherent and articulate framework. Of uh, guarantee of what guarantees of non-recurrence means in actual fact and in actual law, um, if nothing else, can be a, a point of reference and a bulwark 
for those activists on the ground that are pushing reform agendas in their countries. And they can give them some, some harder, something to hold on to, something to stand on foundationally, uh, legally, and uh, as a matter of international principle, if not law, uh, for local activists, local victims groups, local initiatives to sort of stand on this the same way that, you know, other aspects of transnational justice, the right to reparation and remedy have evolved to stand for certain things in the context of uh, justice and redress for victims and truth seeking and so forth. Similarly, um, a more articulate, more coherent framework, a, a foundation rooted in international legal principles can be a bulwark for those um, activists on the ground that are pushing back against those intra intra intransigent governments and by extension using that foundation for their international lobbying efforts so that they can bring in the more friendly elements of the international community to support them from 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 outside using those leverages yeah that, that's great thank you Nikhil I'm aware that we're at half an hour so I'll come to my, my final question I guess um I wondered if you could just reflect a little bit on on what you how you found um, the process of doing your your PhD, and in particular, like you mentioned, that you have a background in in practice. So, what do you think that that brought to your experience? Yeah, I think it's um it's certainly been a pluses and minuses. <laughs> I would say that um, you know, on the plus side, it's of course it's been useful for me to have some sort of con contextual um, understanding and um, I would say affinity or passion towards my project this is very much my project uh born out of my sort of my experiences and so therefore i came to this project kind of um wanting to work on it um and i think this is important you know um people warn warn you before you start your phd that uh it's a long and grueling and isolating and uh soul-sucking process <laughs> But um, especially, you know, if you're having to, you have to um, focus on that same one singular discrete issue for three, four, or however many years it ends up being, you're going to get sick of it uh, by the end of it. But uh, so in that in that sense, I have at least in that one, in that regard, I haven't gotten sick of it because it is my passion project, so to speak. It's a passion project that I was, that I've, I've had. Um, on the flip side, certainly, I would say that, you know, one of the challenges is coming from practice as and you know an advocate and a lawyer and a human rights advocate in the field is that you have to deprogram your advocacy chip in your brain and you have to think more as a scholar and and an academic as opposed to the approach to um any sort of issue in the as an as from an advocacy perspective is is oftentimes more black and white one can say and it's oftentimes you know you are advocating for a very specific position and oftentimes in our in our work in our field it's very legalistic and so as an academic you have to be able to not take an advocacy position right off the bat that's the point of the research and you also have to um, and this is I have to give credit uh, to Queens and to the and to my supervisors and to sort of the broader academic community here um, I my supervisors in particular had very helped me very much to um, de-legalize my thinking, let's say, and take a much more interdisciplinary and more socio-legal approach and more look at more across, you know, uh, uh, cross-cutting issues and get beyond sort of a very sort of legal human rights law-based um, mindset and kind of looking at more sociological questions and 
so forth. So, you know, you kind of have to deep when you, you're coming. You, and this is true of any sort of work, any sort of experience you have. Once you're moving, kind of moving from field to field, shifting gears slightly, you have to deprogram one side of your <laughs> way of thinking and um, open yourself up to the other side of thinking. So that's been, but you know, I've had a lot of help here. So that's good. Sure. Has it changed how you, or shaped how you think about the, the role of academia in transitional justice? You know, does it, how do you, how do you feel about what academics do in that, in that space? Hey, frankly, I would have, I would say it's changed my view uh, the other way around of how uh, international um, organizations approach transitional justice. Yeah. Um, I think, in fact, I think much more of this sort of willingness to approach um, to see the gray areas is needed in the pra in practice as well. I I mean it, they have their own you know they have their own demands. The, the Human Rights Watch can't you know dwell in the gray areas because they have to push for certain uh, you know the, their job is to push for whatever they believe in human rights and justice and accountability and so forth. But I think practice in general um, needs to have a perhaps a look at things from a broader lens. And this goes to, perhaps my research might feed into this as well, insofar as this also speaks to the need to be not so driven by what's happening at the state or national level or the international level and be more supportive of grassroots initiatives and be more open to accepting non-legal or non-judicial forms of transitional uh, of accountability or transitional justice and sort of living by what um, the secretary general's definition himself refers to judicial and non-judicial mechanisms and yet the default in practice is always to the judicial mechanisms and i think that that can change that ought to be that that, uh, that that needs more discussion i think great thank you um thanks for sharing your thoughts on that nikhil uh yeah i could ask you many more questions but um i'm aware that we want to keep to time so i'll bring it to a close uh so yeah thank you so much to nikhil and the ryan for joining us today and yeah it's great to, to hear more about the phd research going on at queens and yeah it's a topic that i was delighted to learn more about so thank you so much for your time well thank you it's been a pleasure chatting with you mm -hmm.